This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Get in, losers. This is the Lady Killers, a feminine rage podcast. I'm Jen. I'm Sammy. I'm Rocco. And I'm May. Our podcast is a tribute to the female identifying killers in horror and more. Each episode will feature us, your Supreme Court of female murderers, discussing our favorite lady killers from your Julias and Jennifers to your Carries and Christines. We'll tell her story, decide if it's good for her horror, and answer the most important question of all. Would we die for her? Join us on Thursdays as we pull on our sweaters, snatch our ice picks, sharpen our scissors, and honor the lady killers who live on the silver screen. No boys were harmed in the making of this podcast. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> Are you ready for season three of Discography? We're jumping into the deep end of The Who. Not only will we go through every Studio Who album in great detail, but their story is often told between albums, so we'll be touching on non-album singles, the solo works of Keith Moon, John Entwistle, Roger Daltrey, and Pete Townsend, and some of the events that would make a record begin as a concept and land as something that would universally change the world. Discography returns to Consequence Podcast Network in January of 2019, Until then, be lucky. Consequence Podcast Network. Strap him down tight. I don't need that bohemoth banging around back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My first fucking corpse rodeo. Just close it up when you're done. When the boys get him over the county... Just make sure that they lock the place up tight. I don't want any surprises until I get there in the morning. No problem. On first sight, I'd say, of course, death is fairly obvious. I'd say that there's nothing obvious about anything that happened here tonight. Not a goddamn thing. From Lori's delusional hospital dream that maybe happened to Dr. Loomis's hotel suite... We are Halloweenies! Trick or treat, motherfuckers. We're here (laughs) for one last stand. Still here in Haddonfield, Illinois, with Rob Zombie. Rob (laughs) Zombie. Rob fucking zombie. Yes, we are here to talk about 2009's masterpiece, Halloween 2, and Masterpiece I put with quotation marks, and that would mean sarcasm. I am your host, 
Michael Myers Rothman. And maybe the last time I am Michael Myers Rothman. We'll have to see. Because we, who knows if we're going to have more sequels to this franchise. But either way, I am president and editor-in-chief of Consequence of Sound and also a constant contributor to this podcast and The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast, also presented by the Consequence Podcast Network. And I'm not the only constant contributor to those podcasts. Across from me is... Mackenzie, the horse, of course, Gerber, and... As Mike just said, I am also a contributor to those podcasts. <laughs> a Stephen King podcast. That's right. Yes, yes. We love Stephen King. We love horror, but we also just love film, which is why we also have... Dominic Suzanne Mayer, film editor at Consequence of Sound. I didn't come here with a cute prepared nickname. I'm really sorry. I didn't know we were doing a bit. Anyway, now that I've been left here ill-prepared by my co-hosts, I am... At Consequence of Sound, and I am also the host of Filmography, a filmmaker's podcast, also on the Consequence Podcast Network. And you just finished an epic run of John Carpenter. We know John Carpenter because he created the first film of this franchise. Uh, That's right. Absolutely. We did (laughs) John Carpenter. Mike, you yourself came on to discuss Halloween, appropriately enough. Yes. Uh, We have a nice little Christmas surprise coming in the next few days here, and then we'll be back stronger than ever in 2019. Are you going to be covering the zombie canon? I don't think we're getting to filmography Rob Zombie quite yet, Mac, but I will advise. Haven't exhausted those avenues, huh? Oh, I would love to just do a full Rob Zombie count. Just, you know, especially since we have so much fun doing this one, you know, why not? Anyway, Dom, could you tell us your relationship, not only just to Rob Zombie, but maybe to the Halloween franchise at large? So I I came around to Rob Zombie's movies because I was a huge Rob Zombie fan as a kid. I was a little too young to like be around when White Zombie was happening. But by the time he went solo, that was the late 90s, which meant two things. One, I was extremely into butt rock around that time. And two, I was a huge, huge professional wrestling fan. I still am, but I was then too. And... If you anyone who grew up watching WWE in the late 90s will tell you one of the most omnipresent performance artists outside of Kid Rock, obviously, and Limp Bizkit also, obviously, was Rob Zombie, who was Edge's music entrance music for a number of years. (laughs) And so like most things in my life, I like discovered Rob Zombie through pro wrestling obliquely enough. But Halloween, (laughs) I actually came to later than that because I was an extremely skittish kid. Mm -hmm. Like the Nightmare Before Christmas scared the shit out of me until I was late into single digit age. So I was extremely afraid of pretty much everything all the time. So I got to horror movies a little later in life. That's fair. That's fair. But I also remember seeing, oddly enough, before I saw Carpenter's classic Halloween, I saw Busta Rhymes Halloween. Oh, yeah. That's where I started. Yeah. And I remember going, wow, this is not good. Yeah. And then I, and that was at a time when I was trash hunting and like it was my job until (laughs) later when I would trash hunt because I made it my actual job. And I remember thinking, wow, this is terrible. And then I went online and was told, okay, here are all the actual good Halloween movies. Yeah, so you went backwards. Yeah. I think a lot of people nowadays do actually go backwards with this franchise, if only because they, you know, horror is so big, and you are obviously going to start with the ones that are, you know, whatever's out there coming in the out now. Yeah. You know, a lot and of people. And the reboots. So, like with the Friday the 13th reboot, you mm-hmm. know, I'm sure a lot of kids watched that. And then went back and started watching the originals. Oh, I'm sure. You know, they're not, I wish they were played more often on TV, but now with streaming and cable going away, 
it's hard to just stumble across it on you know live television you know what I mean? it really is and and you know for me growing up in the 90s it was such a big deal to just watch these horathons on usa or you know even on tbs or tnt especially with monster vision and all Joe Bob. and i don't think that just that just doesn't happen anymore because you have this, this this plethora of streaming options and stuff so i do i actually think that's a good point with the friday the 13th reboot because i do wonder how many people started there for sure which is you know whatever well and i know not everybody on this show is the biggest fan of this year's highly successful reboot slash sequel slash whatever it is but you know, it's going to get a bunch of teenagers yep. who, for a lot of people, this is going to be their first Halloween movie, yeah. and they're going to want to go back and see where it started. You know, it's interesting going back and looking at the Rob Zombie remake and then also seeing what David Gordon Green did with this reboot this year because it's two different ways to approach this franchise. With the remake, you're literally just – you could just do those two movies and walk away, whereas like with this reboot, you do kind of have to scale back to the original one if you really want to kind of understand the contextual stuff of it. And I do wonder, when you look at the remake and the, the generation that was coming into those films – Obviously, Rob Zombie's film is so much more brutal and so much more antagonistic than uh, John Carpenter's original. So I think a lot of people that would watch Rob Zombie's that were interested into that sort of slam bam, you know, sort of action might go back to Carpenter's and be like, eh, I don't know. This is not for me. And I wonder if the people going into David Gordon Green's film, which has a lot of elements of that sort of like that rough, that ne- un- that necessary roughness or unnecessary roughness, if it, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. Shadow Rodney Dangerfield exactly. one time. Um, but I do wonder if they're going to have more of an appreciation, the generation that's coming in watching um, David Gordon Green's and going back to John Carpenter's, if they'll have more appreciation for the original than, you know, say the, the audiences that were finding it in 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Well, and I think that's a really interesting point, too, because, you know, we're in sort of a renaissance moment for horror filmmaking oh, at totally. large, like by the mainstream, at the indie level, you name it. And a lot of the horror that's really been getting over in the last few years is this slower, more deliberately paced stuff. Yeah. You're... The Vavitch, your Babadook, your Hereditary, and so on. You know, these are slower burning horror movies that are really getting over with audiences. And I think even Get Out is probably the best example of that. Absolutely. Yeah. No, go for it. And I was just going to say, yeah, I think there's something really interesting in the way that, you know, horror is boomerang back around from being, as I'm sure we'll discuss in this episode, this like really outsized, savage, bombastic thing to going for something resembling understatement again. Well, I hope so, uh, because yeah, I, I, hope- I looking back on I, I this past week alone, I've had to watch a lot of films from the aughts and God is an ugly period for horror. I mean, it's just just disgustingly garish with just all the sort of regards to character to the the violence being like omnipresent to the point of just taking precedence over anything else and i i would say that even over like some of the splatter stuff from the 80s like the the, the way that the violence like is the, depicted the saw trend is that what you mean? yeah it's like this like it's almost the, torture the, porn but it's like an offshoot of it right. in a way and and i guess it's it's just all in the same brand of torture porn at that point but yeah like odds horror with the exception of like some of the more like supernatural stuff like maybe the ring um or even like 28 days later like ah, it's it's just really just unforgiving cynical and just very not fun revisit, you know, and, and I say this having watched this film and also uh, watching the remake of Black Christmas, which is just totally misses the point of the original one and does this ridiculous thing of not only being overly violent, but trying to overly explain everything as well. And I, it's just these two qualities always, of always horror I can't stand. Mi- always a major mistake. Yeah. 
trying to explain things too much in horror films. Well, it's just it's it's as easy as thinking like, is the boogeyman scarier when you like turn on the lights and you see him, or if you have the dark, if you're in the darkness? And it's oh, always, this this I mean, movie, this movie definitely addresses that. Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. Uh, but before we get to that movie, we have to talk about the current state of affairs in the Halloween universe in a segment we like to call Mr. Sandman. Bring me a tweet. Boogeyman is coming. Leave me alone. He doesn't believe us. Don't you know what happens on Halloween? Yeah, we get candy. <laughs> Not a lot of news in the Halloween universe. I think things are kind of cooled down since David Gordon Green's classic at this point has conquered the box office to the point that is now the all-time highest grossing ah, highest grossing slasher film, which is unbelievable, unbelievable. But you know, we know we're going to get a sequel. That's that's obviously at this point that's Blumhouse's idea. Yeah. It's going to happen. But we have no idea who's going to be directing it and <laughs> who's going to you know be in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of the headlines that have come out uh, over the past month since we've done the last episode is that uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, you might know as Laurie Strode or Carrie Tate, depending on uh, which uh, timeline you want to be on. <laughs> she says that she's absolutely down to do another sequel. Uh, but hasn't been asked yet. I'm of the camp that doesn't want to ask her because I don't think that we need another story surrounded by Laurie at all. Um, I don't actually want any of the characters from this movie because I think that it would be better if you just did something totally different because I think that's the whole point of the taking away from the sibling thing that they don't have in this new one. Um, and there's still no word on whether David Gordon Green's going to be coming back to this uh, franchise. So it's we know what's happening. I'm sure we'll get another one. I don't want G- Green to come back. Not mm-hmm. that I felt like he directed this movie poorly. I yeah. just would like to see him do something else. I agree. Because he's, I agree. A, he's a good filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And I don't want him to waste his time on a sequel to Halloween, which yeah. a lot of people loved. Mm-hmm. I did not. Well, we all know that... Uh, based on the interview that we ran on Consequence of Sound and also on Halloweenies as a bonus episode, our second interview with John Carpenter this year, he confirmed that he's down to do some scoring as well. So odds are we're going to get Carpenter back. We're probably going to get Jamie Lee Curtis back because we know that that she was one of the biggest box office draws for this. Um, And probably going to get David Gordon Green, I would imagine, unless they, you know, I mean, they're going to throw him money and he knows how much money he made on this. I don't know. It's too early to guess, but do we, do you think Lori survives this one? <laughs> I think she's going to have to live for forever now in this series. Do you think she's... Oh, you're, oh really? Oh, I you do don't think, think she's going to so. die. No, I don't. Because I can, they, see, I can easily see them killing her in this one and like really officially handing the torch over to her granddaughter. So are you saying like this would be like the Creed 2 of... Uh, yeah, absolutely. She's going she's gonna to look at her granddaughter as she's being... As her time. throat slit and she's going to mouth... It's your time now. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I can hope that they take their time with this one, figure out a plot that doesn't involve, you know, doctors wearing masks and having stupid twists and really doing something a little more original than just kind of, you know, recapping the entire series that it retconned. But anyway, <clears throat> that's uh, that's pretty much the majority of the news that came out i mean yeah. there really hasn't been much i mean there's been some deleted scenes that have been surfacing because the film 
hits digital on December 28th, and then it also hits Blu-ray on January 15th. Mac, be sure to pick it up. Can't wait. Can't wait. Um, but other than that, I mean, there's been some great merchandise. Uh, NECA is uh, finally made a Laurie Strode figure after all this time. Unfortunately, it's not the original Laurie Strode. It's, it's the, the new Laurie, Laurie Strode, uh, oh, which is interesting. I wish they would just do two of them. I want, I've been wanting a Laurie Strode figure since I, I was... I have a feeling, though, Mike, that they'll they'll follow up with the original. If I hope the, so. If that, if that new one does well. I want, like, uh, you know, um, when she has the clothes hanger, I want... Um, Three of the two of the knives, maybe, or the the um the knitting but the, but needle. The knives don't fit in the hand; they just they just sit on the floor. Yeah, that's true because that's where they go anyway in the movie. And I hope it comes with a little Tommy Doyle. That would be pretty cool too. <laughs> but he's like, you know, they always have like the extra figure. Yeah, you know? <laughs> it's just yeah. Tommy Doyle. It's he's Tommy so, Doyle. He's so tiny. Yeah, I mean, it would work, and they could come with the pumpkin and stuff, and maybe some uh, tarantula man comics. But either way, uh, <laughs> get ready for a lot of uh merchandise uh surrounding halloween what i've noticed this year alone just having done more horror podcasts is that there are so many companies that aren't even officially tied to the actual movie uh merchandise that it's just making just a glut of merchandise at this point whether it's creepy co whether it's fright rags whether it's i mean jesus christ it just keeps going on and like Mm -hmm. i feel like every time i log into instagram on any of the accounts that we have i just keep seeing more and more stuff that's going on there and uh it's great. I mean, that, that that's wonderful. I'm, I'm going to be broke for the rest of my life. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's in terms of stuff that's coming out, it's it's impossible to keep the tabs on everything that's going to be happening with Halloween in terms of merchandise. So just Google yeah, <laughs> or search on Instagram and you're going to find something you're going to want to buy. And on that note, it's it is crazy to, to think of all of the merchandise that is now available for these kinds of movies that we did not have when we were no. growing up, you know. There weren't, you know, Fred Krueger action figures. And if they were, they were not half as cool as the next no, figure. No, I mean, now. I, I boldly remember 20 years ago when uh, Anchor Bay first started getting the rights to a lot of this stuff. And it was like, ooh, if you had a snow globe or a double cassette thing that we actually have in the studio right oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, that was a big deal. Yeah. And, and like, even having just some sort of, like, weird figurine that would be, like, stoic or something, that was like I had to find it because there was no action figures. Now it's like you could have so many different variants, yeah. and it's it's kind of overwhelming at this point. But either way, do you have any more any more news? Got any more news? Know. That's it. You didn't hear any uh, any feeds? Haven't going heard, up? heard anything. All right. Well, <laughs> let's move away from the Sandman, and let's uh, let's visit our favorite mental asylum, and specifically their uh, their archives room in a segment we call <laughs> the Smiths Grove Archives. Yes, I'm okay. He's gone. He's gone from here. The evil is gone. Ooh, it is cold down here. Haven't been here in a while. Uh, and uh, it's getting a little dusty. I didn't take my Claritin, and now I'm sneezing. I'm a little upset, but that's okay. I think it's par for the course because I'm a little upset with this movie. And so were audiences when it first came out. But we're going to scale back maybe a year or two before its August 2009 release date and go back into what happened in the aftermath of Rob Zombie's Halloween 1. Now, if you recall in our last episode, we did discuss how that original film was pretty much like two movies coddled together. And it's because Zombie originally wanted to do more of like a prequel of sorts that was going to spend more time in the asylum and really get in Michael's head to find out what makes him tick, which is what everyone wanted when they first saw the 1978 original version from John Carpenter. Um, 
And uh, so when he came, when it came time to a sequel, Zombie was not really interested in doing this. He huh. just did, he was just kind of like, like I already had to do all these. I had to jump through all these fucking hoops. I was going to say, yeah, you know, to make did. this happen, and he did, yeah, because I mean that second half is the most cynical part of the movie because it just feels like he's just giving the audiences what they want, which is like a shot for shot remake of the um, of the first one. Um, even down to the dialogue that just wasn't the case in the first half of that film. So basically, you know, in there were discussions already because look, this is the Halloween franchise and we know those Akkads love to get that money out of oh Michael. Uh, if you've learned anything in this, uh, in this uh, limited series from, uh, <laughs> from us, this is, that's the the one running theme is that the Akkads just love that money. And Malik Akkad was not going to let this die. So he knew that uh, if zombie didn't come back, he was going to find some other people to make it. And he did. Um, at the time, um, after its uh, release, because it was a huge blockbuster, the the first remake. Oh, yeah. You know, because everybody wanted Michael. But they didn't know they wanted... Uh, they didn't know that they uh, wanted Michael to that degree. Um, and uh, so it was announced that um, Julian Morey and Alexandre, Al- Alexander uh, Bustillo, they were in negotiations to... Um, uh, actually film the sequel and this was going to be called this was like a normal sequel is what they they kind of quote unquote was were doing which means probably that they were just going to continue uh with what happened at the end of uh, halloween one uh which spoiler alert um she shot him in the head <laughs> so i don't know how the hell they are ever going to make a sequel to this movie but hey it's halloween so they you know they could literally chop off his fucking head and still well, make I've a got, sequel i've got a note on that but in a minute either way <laughs> the guys that they were going to get for this uh at the time had really done nothing um they've they've gone on to direct uh the wonderful 2017 leatherface but uh at the time they had only done uh inside which was uh this kind of french home invasion horror film home invasion michael myers he likes to go into homes makes sense but uh, they really didn't have much on there. So it would have been an, an interesting leap uh, forward. So Well, and I think it's interesting, too, because the inside people would have at least fit the level of violence that Lionsgate seemingly wanted out of the zombie reboot of the series. Because inside is like as someone who's probably way too well read on like the foreign extreme horror boom of the early to mid two thousands inside is one of the better movies from that wave. It is also by far one of the most unsettling. Oh really? So you've seen inside before. Yes. Then, okay. Okay. I actually own it even though it's a movie I'm probably never going to watch again. So <laughs> I also own martyrs, which is another martyrs movie I've is seen dark. more than I wish to. Wow. Then I, that actually makes me bummed out because that would have been interesting uh, to see what their approach would have been. But instead, guess what? Uh, Rob Zombie came back. <laughs> Zombie pitched the horse, and they were like, "Let's, let's it's a go." Well, he I guess he took a, a year uh, year off, kind of like Michael Myers in this movie, and uh, he came back and he was just like, "You know what? I, I think I could do this." And at this point, he felt that because he was not going to be bound to have to retain any of the John Carpenterness of uh, the original one because that first one had so much John Carpenterness in it. Uh he would be feel free to do whatever he wanted in this one and that kind of in Malika Cat even said just like, yeah, no, go nuts. Um and, and go he nuts does. he does. <laughs> he Seriously. Does. He loses it. Um <laughs> now there are two different versions of uh this film. All three of us watched the two hour uh director's unrated cut, whatever the hell you want to call it. Uh, in which I can best dis- best be described as like a a truck stop Lynchian horror film. 
in a way. Um, that actually sounds really good. <laughs> it, it does sound good, but you know, in in on look in all respect, this does leap away from the source material. Right. I will give it that. Having said that. You know, yeah. <laughs> Having said that, <laughs> leaping away from the source material isn't a great idea when your play- replacement is starting a movie with the Merriam-Webster definition of a concept that you're going to explore later in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also point out that this movie feels very much untethered from its own time. Because it's very late to the extreme horror party. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure we'll come back to this throughout the episode. Yeah. But the grim brutality, the ugly digital photography, there are a lot of things that situate this as a very mid-2000s, all capital letters, extreme horror movie. But the problem is this is 2009. So if the first zombie movie is sort of coming late to that party, by now it is well past And what's really wild, if you think about it in historical context, literally five weeks after Halloween 2 hit theaters at the end of 2000 or end of August 2009, five weeks later, the first paranormal activity would come out in wide release, which would change the horror movies would fundamentally change immediately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it'd be very low budget horror, even more to the fact that, I mean, because these movies didn't cost much, but those movies really didn't cost much. And like that's where Blumhouse kind of just changed the game at that point with with what he was, you know. There were all sorts of problems on this movie in terms of filming. They lost footage of, you know, days worth of footage and things. And <laughs> it was constantly raining. Well, they changed uh, locations too because the original one shot in Pasadena. Yeah, and then, this is shot in Georgia, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's, yeah, it's crazy. A lot of the director cut situation, material, whatever that they added back in. You know, so I watched it with commentary and Mm -hmm. Rob, you know, it was actually very interesting. The guy is really well put together and really well spoken, clearly knew what he was doing, really maps out the reasons for, you know, every shot, et cetera. You know, I mean, even slow motion sequences, he like explain why he did that. However, you know, I just, I just didn't like it. (laughs) So yeah, no, but but yeah, he even went as far as saying that the, the Webster dictionary portion in the beginning, he said, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people weren't paying attention and missed this. And that's why they didn't understand the, the horse and thing in the future of the movie. (laughs) I thought, no, dude, it's just stupid. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. I mean, it's, there are a lot of bold ideas here. I will. I'm going to keep saying that that's gonna be the running theme of this episode, but it's so poorly executed because you have a guy that is one of the worst screenwriters in Hollywood history. And I am, that is not hyperbole. Oh, I'm sorry. It's really not. This is, he's just atrocious with dialogue. Anything is just given for shock. I mean, literally the first 10 minutes of this movie or first five minutes of this movie start out where you're like, wow, maybe he learned from his mistakes and realized that he should probably start writing human beings. But then you go and sit with these coroners and they're immediately talking about fucking corpses and left and right. And you're like, well, nothing's changed. And Pretty much the rest of the movie, while it's not as grotesque with regards to dialogue as I would say with the first one, because the first one just is just filled with miserable, miserable characters. And there actually are some human beings in here and we'll get to them um, as they go on. But it's such a formless movie, even as the even as the unrated director's cut, because as you were pointing out earlier, Mac, like the the director's cut is Laurie's film. Whereas the original theatrical cut is Michael's movie. Right. And that's what Rob Zombie said that in the commentary. He felt like the uncut version was more about Lori and her descent into madness and in terms of her relationship. uh, Well, she's related to. And so she's like, well, if Michael's crazy, then why wouldn't why wouldn't she go crazy as well? 
I think that's a dangerous thought process as well. Though <laughs> I don't think just because someone in your family is crazy means everybody's going to be nuts. Yeah. Well, in Angel Myers, nay, Laurie Strode, <laughs> she is also kind of drawn as this figure that the movie never really commits to in any way or another, yeah. like, especially in discussing the two hour unrated cut or just shy of two hour. But anyway, you know, there were a lot of passages that I didn't remember from the theatrical release. And it does, I think you would both agree, fundamentally change the pacing of the movie, particularly as it relates to Lori, mm-hmm. who is sort of situated as like, I mean, she's outright doing Anthony Perkins and Psycho near the end of the movie. She, but she is, yeah. there's a lot more of a build to that. Mm-hmm. So whatever faults that we can find with this movie and they are legion it does at least like really try to scale back and tell halloween as a laurie strode story yeah because if even carpenter's original is michael's story most of the sequels in one way or another aside from the one that outright doesn't have him in it is michael's story yeah are michael's stories rather here is really interesting because it tries to pull back and make laurie a person in a movie that is also way more interested in grotesque hyperviolence than it is in anything else. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, the, the, to, to, you know, to Zombie's credit, you know, with the tagline being like, family is forever, this film does try to make some sort of, um, it really does try to chew on the idea of just family sin and, and the idea of like um, the burden that family causes, uh, you know, Obviously not to the effect that Hereditary does this year, but, right. you know, there is this kind of idea that um, this curse is shared and, uh, you know, and it does it does actually execute the sort of um, spirituality, you know, spirituality of it better than some of the original Halloween movies, I would say, um, just because I buy it a little bit more in this because this world is so fucking crazy. But <laughs> I but it still is the, the problem is that this movie is still so formless and to the point of what Dom was just saying, like it, it can't decide what it wants to focus on. And, and I, and I think that's a big problem because whereas yes, it could have been Laurie's movie. I, in, in, in better hands probably. Uh, but you also have already started this franchise in being interested in trying to peel back Michael Myers. And so by doing that, now that you've already set up this expectation of just being like, okay, we're going to know even more about him in this one to the point where we're actually following him. You know, one of the biggest scary, you know, one of the biggest scares of the original series is just not knowing where he ever was in between these years. But now we get these sweeping aerial (laughs) shots of him traveling across the plains of Illinois. Like he's in the Fellowship of the Ring or something. (laughs) (laughs) With that cloak on, yeah. Uh, uh yeah well and it's very weird too because it gets back to the whole discussion which has come up on this show and will come up in any discussion of remaking a movie like halloween where when you have a movie that is specifically predicated on the idea of a character being terrified because they are a cipher because they are the unknown because they are the shape in this instance mm-hmm. The minute you start giving the shape and origin story, I would argue you're fundamentally missing the point of the series. Mm-hmm. See also all of the Texas Chainsaw reboots that try to humanize Leatherface. Yes. Yeah. yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you, Dom. I think that, and we talked about this with the first Halloween. Mm-hmm. He even said that, you know, it it shouldn't, I wish it was never, it, I wish it didn't touch Halloween at all. He should have just made a, an original movie getting into the psyche of of a serial killer as a child like he wanted to yeah 
And then I would have, that would have, you know, maybe I wouldn't have liked the movies because I wasn't really interested in this. Well, it's also just like textbook serial killer. But like it didn't, like this doesn't, like, there's nothing here except for character names. Mm-hmm. There's nothing here to connect it really to anything anymore. So if you really wanted to take Michael Myers and do something completely different with it, why even use Michael Myers? Just just do a new horror movie. It's not like he's making, you know, he's making, you know, Devil's Rejects and things like, you know, he wasn't. He can make a brand new original horror movie and people will go to it. Well, this is actually interesting because the more I think about it, I feel like this film is a perfect example of why the series of the franchise just really needed to adopt an anthology approach. Because honestly, the only real original thing in in it, like the, the more, the more, the only thing that warrants a sequel of sorts is the idea that you are doing something on Halloween because there's only so much you can do with the story of a psycho killer coming home to a small town and stalking babysitters without it being redundant. You know, the only reason why it's so alluring and so interesting, and even in, even from recontextualizing it or reconceptualizing it or rebooting it or remaking it, is the fact that it's going to have kills that happen on Halloween. It's just going to be the same story again and again and again. No matter if you sequelize it, reboot it, you try to do some reimagining of it, it's always going to boil down to the same thing, which is why even just looking at this film that tries to depart so much from the source material and still just wind up doing the same thing as the original does, but just at a more amplified level, it does give credence to the idea that Tommy Lee Wallace and John Carpenter and Deborah Hill had of just, no, let's just tell different stories on Halloween. And that should be the unifying thing. And honestly, if that's the, if there's one takeaway that I've had from this entire podcast, it's going through each one of these, these episodes and realizing how much more original and refreshing Halloween three that approach would have been because even someone like Rob Zombie, who I don't think is a great filmmaker and I don't think, I definitely don't think is a good writer. Even when he's doing some sort of clumsy sort of reimagining, reconceptualizing, I still feel like this is just the same fucking thing again. Like it, it's, it's just, it might be a little, it might be lucid. There might be horses and there might be talking Myers at, at the end of a director's cut. Um, but it still is the same thing. It's still this idea of a, a force with a knife that is just going to keep coming after you. And it's just to the nth degree of intensity. And that's not interesting to me. Even even if you're doing crazy colors and wild sort of angles and the brutality of music, it's, it's just the same thing. Well, and it's the running zombies in Dawn of the Dead conundrum, isn't mm-hmm. it, at that point? Because yeah. it's, you know, whether this can work or not almost becomes secondary to the primary concern, which is arguably that you're changing the fabric, the intrinsic DNA of the premise and the film so much. Yeah. That it's almost like you're foregoing what makes it what it is, what made it a movie that we are rebooting ad nauseum to this day. Yes. yes. And, and and like what, what the zombie verse feels to me is pretty much like the soft, loud effect of like that the Pixies and Nirvana did where it's like you have the soft, you know, very... Uh, patient filmmaking of John Carpenter and then you boom hit the distortion pedal and then all of a sudden you have this like amplified version of Rob Zombie's world and that's really the only difference I see between the two of them Um, and because at the like as much as he wants to try to get into the psychology and get into some sort of like weird spiritualism it's the same fucking premise and it's and that to me that's that's it just proves the point that like I just don't I I don't know this franchise for me is just too redundant (laughs) I think that there's a lot of people out there that are interested in the psyche of Michael Myers and getting to know what makes him tick, why he does what he does, how he sees the world. And it's very 
I mean, that's just not my thing. I think that Rob Zombie absolutely wanted to do that, and he talks at not he talks about it a lot on the on the uh, the commentary about how he really wanted to get into his head and show how he sees the world. Yeah, and I just think, unfortunately, I think I, I'll stand by this. The scariest things are things you can't see. It's your own imagination, and when you just pull the curtain back and just spoon feed us every single thing that this killer is seeing and it's his mother and a white horse it's it just isn't it's not scary yeah no it might be interesting i think that he definitely took it and ran with it and i have to give him credit at the at the bottom at the end of the day i have to give him credit for trying to do something completely different but he but like you said with the with the when you're losing the core reason for the remake and totally changing everything then why even remake it just do your own movie about this other serial killer yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, and it's really interesting to contextualize this against Zombie's career, too, because he's coming off in doing these Halloween movies. He's coming off The Devil's Rejects, arguably his best movie. Yeah, definitely a relic of the era in which it was made in every conceivable form. 100%. Yeah. But still like something that suggested, OK, he's doing a bloody southern fried clockwork orange. There might be something here. And then he tries to do a Halloween that is a slavish adaptation up until the second that it is not at all a slavish adaptation, for better and mostly worse, I would argue. And then you have this movie, which I would say, especially after revisiting it, this feels far less like a movie that is like flirting with these surrealist touches the way that I remembered it, and a lot more like a movie that is rudderless and is flirting with these kind of dolly-esque cutaways to cover for the fact that mike to your point this is a really formless horror movie Mm -hmm. especially at two hours when we watched the director's cut there was a period where i believe you pointed out to me there was still an hour in the movie and nothing of particular consequence had happened yeah and it's i mean it's it's amazing how much time is spent on nothing until everything starts happening and it feels like it's over within 20 minutes. And it's, so, it's, it's wild to me. I have a question. So Rob Zombie's director's cut takes place two years later yeah. and not one year later. <laughs> Big deal. What, what was Michael doing? Because of the, the opening of the movie, the dream sequence only starts when uh, she wakes up at the hospital. So everything before that is supposed to be how Michael basically escapes in the ambulance and all that stuff. So he just went away for two years and then come decides to arbitrarily come back. Like I don't understand that. Well, I, I, I never still don't even those. understand the intro that much though, because I have to. I, I want to imagine that like that was there any attack at the hospital or was it really just all in her head? I we don't know. I, I would like to believe that there was an attack at the hospital, but then what happened to Michael? Yeah. So maybe he did just get away and then and then leave, and there wasn't an attack at the hospital, and she's just losing her mind. Uh, <laughs> Either way, it's the best part of the entire movie. Spoiler alert! It's for me. very, it's very uh, in terms of directing. I yeah. thought, and I thought it's funny because he was talking about shooting in the hospital, and he was saying that it can get really boring because the hospital's literally made to look 
the same every corner, mm-hmm. every turn, so it can be really boring to shoot. And I thought, hey, that's a challenge as a director, yeah. you know. And that's why I think that you know the original Halloween two works really well because you got Dean Cundey lighting that thing in all yep. different kinds of ways to to make this what would seem a monotonous hospital be like this really interesting place to shoot and, a film. And honestly, like I would have been absolutely into this almost like sort of quasi inland empire thing where she just has to keep running through the hospital and it keeps going from one dreamy sort of like sequence to another, because what's great about that sequence in the beginning is that it really does start from a very steady place of, okay, we are in a hospital. This is a real setting. And all of a sudden every corner that she keeps turning, it gets more and more dreamlike and the dream logic starts playing into the effect. And like all of a sudden she's in this like incredibly weird sort of urban, um, uh, um, the sort of, uh, got kind of like, um, oil rig style like sub basement thing that's like oh, out that's, of nowhere that's, that was not in the theatrical cut either the the pile of bodies underneath the and i love that and yeah. like if you would have kept doing that and done this almost like argento-esque that was, that was, thing, yeah, that, that was very surreal yeah I, I i agree i think that that they should have kept that scene i, th- I kind of liked that part, yeah. portion of it well and it also speaks to the fact that zombie has a long history of being the most effective when he's getting really weird i yes. mean those are the parts of this movie people remember the parts of House of a Thousand Corpses that get the most hallucinatory are the best stuff that movie has yeah. to offer. And even in some of his lesser later features, like The Lords of Salem, yeah. for as shaky a film as it is, has this genuinely transgressive sense of perversion that works through it as it goes on. Yeah. That's a really effective movie, too. Like, there's a strange disconnect between Zombie, the well-read, literate horror filmmaker who, like, clearly got into this because of a passion for the genre, and Zombie, the trend chaser who has always tended to emerge on screen at the end of it. No, I agree. I mean, it, it's 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 almost like this is, like, a bridge between um, his past and where he would go for sure. Like he, it's almost like he was testing the waters with this mainstream production in a way that he wasn't doing with Halloween seven or <laughs> Halloween seven. I mean, Halloween 2007. And for me, I, I like the, 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 the more dreamy Lords of Salem type stuff. Like if, because it's, le- it relies less on any dialogue and it relies less on any sort of, um, narrative because he doesn't know how to do that. And I, and I think that maybe, you know, to, to Dom, when we were watching that, might, that might not be his point. I mean, he doesn't prioritize that sort of sense. And like, maybe that's fine. But when you, when you flood a movie with dialogue that is just so putrid and awful, I don't want to listen to it. It becomes assaultive. It becomes exhausting. It becomes this sort of like we were. I, I was like likening it to like audio tapes that would play at like Guantanamo Bay. Like it's just exhaust. It's like it's. Uh, I hated it. Well, and as much as anything, too, you know, zombie. He's very much of the shock rock era, mm-hmm. as we established earlier, yeah. and in the lap, last episode as well. He's very much a product of a cultural moment. Where being outre in that way and really trying to push boundaries was the thing. Yeah. And now we call that an edgelord and we make fun of it. But in the early 2000s, that was the cultural currency, especially in the quote unquote alternative scene, you know? So these movies are very much reflective, again, of a sensibility within their own time. But I also think like 
you see Zombie wanting to be ambitious in a way that ironically would probably be more fashionable now when you have a generation of horror filmmakers transparently wearing their influences on their sleeves. I mean, (laughs) going back to Hereditary, that's just a Polanski movie that I don't have to feel bad about liking. (laughs) But I think with Zombie, he just reached a point at some point in his career where he realized that the real money was in the theater of grotesquerie and just threw his arms around it. Oh, absolutely. Which is strange because even this, he he said that he was driving to set one day mm-hmm. and saw this horse and that it looked like ethereal and then and he was just so captured by it, he decided to write it into the movie. It wasn't like he had this grand plan to do this and he was trying to say He's something with it. it. He just happened to see it. Yeah. And like that's fine. You know, some people get inspired by random shit. But... You know, it just doesn't. It doesn't get there, especially in the in this movie with it being so grotesque and over the well, top. It's, it's like the crux of the film too. I so know. like this random it becomes thing. this. I mean, it starts off with the fucking dictionary, yeah. uh, the white horse thing. So it's just, it's so weird. It, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I I think the the best thing that could be taken from this film is that to you, to Dom's point is that this does feel like the end of an era, and it feels in looking back and knowing what came literally a month later this is just like this last gasp that i i feel like the 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 sort of genre itself pivoted away from less than a month you know maybe a month later you know they're already test screening coming out at that point so yeah i would say maybe a month month later because this came out the end of august so and i and i want to remember like paranormal activity screenings were already happening in september so it's almost like this just was a forgotten thing it was like oh yeah halloween 2 it comes out yeah which is why the box office was literally like half of what the 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 2007 one was you know released on the same weekend two years apart so there's probably no better illustration of that yeah there was just a literal depreciation based on what was and consequently wasn't the fashion of the time and honestly it it was the the signs were almost there because you know earlier that year was when they did the friday the 13th remake and that had still has never had a sequel um a year later is less than a year later is when they had the nightmare on elm street uh, you know, remake that came out, which both of them did pretty. I mean, they but all, none of these were box office flops, but they also right. weren't cultural cachets, like say, like you know, Paranormal Activity, where everyone was talking about. It. And it's worth mentioning at this time that Nightmare on Elm Street was, I, if memory serves, an April release. It was, and Friday the Thirteenth was February. Yes. So those were dump month movies that made money, but they didn't exactly set the world on fire. Yeah, either. it's like all these films of this sort of recalibration. Uh, they also they all felt like also rans by the time they were, they immediately came out in the theaters, which is really telling of that time because now it's like the opposite to your point where you were saying like this probably would do much better now uh, because there's this sort of nostalgia that I think ties to what the streaming era has warranted because back in like the late 2000s like that wasn't the case yet I mean Netflix was still primarily mail in and that that all the streaming stuff didn't happen until like maybe five years later three years later so. I think that was a huge part of it. And I think that just the idea of seeing the poster of the two or, you know, the name again was kind of this like sort of Simpsons sort of cynicism that came to it. We were just like, oh, great. They're doing that still, you know, like and and and, because I mean, I felt that way for sure. I mean, I remember seeing posters all across Chicago for all of the three of these movies and being like, 
oh god they're we're still doing this like there's nothing really original out there and a lot of it was because there wasn't like this was it this was horror and you weren't like you know because the streaming thing wasn't happening we weren't seeing all of ty west's stuff or the you know the the mike mike flanagan's at that time or um you know uh or even who we were just adam weingard doing his stuff Th- that that was like you had to like really be told about that you couldn't just find it on streaming so right. this was horror and i think people were exhausted by it so yeah yeah i mean back I, in our day in 2009 <laughs> yeah that's what it sounds like right <laughs> yeah, and, uh, but do you have something else you well, want to say zombie was exhausted too because this whole entire process was played by problems and reshoots oh and yeah and recuts and they lost footage and um but i just wanted to mention a few things uh that were in the director's cut that were not in the original mm-hmm. um uh like his explanation for how michael survives he just said he just he brushes over it i can't god bless him he just says well you know you kind of let it go uh, <laughs> she she was a bad shot or you know she you know, grazed him yeah or something, whatever you know? he's like what can you do you know he's like he's like she, she definitely shot him in the head at yeah. the end of the first movie yeah i mean literally the blood like, definitely pops all over to it her. but it was like well you're gonna do a sequel like how do you explain that away um also <laughs> so ridiculous <laughs> he talks about how they've they've completely recreated the legend of michael myers he's not a boogeyman in the shadows anymore i was like that's the entire that's, premise yeah. of michael myers but okay you know he did he did something totally new um they they there was a lot of sequences that were just extended or or you know things that were cut because the studio thought it, it didn't uh put laurie in a good light they thought that they laurie was unlikable and I was like, oh, welcome to all Rob Zombie yes, characters. Right? <laughs> They're always like, no one's ever like a, a, a likable protagonist. Um, but, uh, you know, all those scenes where she's fighting with Annie, that a lot of that stuff was t- toned down to make them uh, that friendship a little bit, you know, uh, I guess more genuinely nice. To Which I actually whatever, you know? like that well, because that, that sequence, was interesting. It was at least interesting to me. The sequence with Brad Dorf and, and them at the table mm-hmm. was actually like mostly improv and he just really liked it. So he kept it in. Oh, okay. So that wasn't actually necessarily written with, like, by a zombie, but that's pizza? actually, like, yeah, okay. but that's like when they're, you know, and uh, God, you know, God bless Brad Dorf. I love him. And, He's, well, and, I'm going to talk a lot about Brad yeah, Dorf later I, on. But, I, I yeah. like those sequences and even the scene when he finds Annie's body and he, it, he just breaks down. That is, that is not all there in the theatrical version. People were laughing at that because they were, it made them uncomfortable. And he says that, you know, a lot of times mm-hmm. when you see something like that, people's honest reactions, it's so hard to watch. Almost yeah. You, you almost, you can't help but laugh. I think we did laugh, uh, in one of the sequences. Right. Towards and the so end. they cut that from the, but he kept it in there because he thought, you know, he, he, he really liked that. Uh, but yeah, the original, the original ending, I can't remember how it goes. Hopefully, y'all listening have watched the theatrical version recently. But I think I want to say he pushes the the fingers into his eyes, into Loomis's eyes, and then he's um, he's killed. Uh, whatever. But. Yeah. Well, I I I don't know if Laurie. I think in the the original theatrical version, Laurie is. You think that Laurie is in a sanitarium at the end of the movie, but he says in this version, even though that is kind of what happens. He says in this version that she is definitively dead, that that is just a vision that she is having as she's dying that and why she's in a sanitarium is beyond me. Well, he's but in the he, original, he, the, well, the original cut he does. All right. So this is what happens. So Michael attacks Loomis and kills him. Um, uh, and also steps in front of a window holding Loomis's body. And Michael is shot twice by Sheriff Brackett and then falls onto some spikes and some farming equipment. Uh, hello, Halloween Ooh, 6. Halloween 6. <laughs> uh, and then apparently released from her visions, Lori walks over, tells Michael she loves him, and then kills him. But then the shed door opens. Lori walks out wearing uh, Michael's mask and then 
Ugh. Same thing. Sits in and this I do. I do remember this now yeah, that yeah, you're reading yeah. it back. I mean, ridiculous. I, I actually prefer. I think I prefer the director's cut a little bit more. And I that. think you really need to think about preference in this case because you are thus going to bat for the version of this movie where Michael talks. This is true. So I want you to keep that in mind. That is actually a good point. He also also the end credits um, with Love Hurts playing. <laughs> Oh, yeah, uh, we'll talk about which that. Which is a throwback to the first Halloween. It if is. you remember, Love Hurts is playing at the Red Rabbit. It is, with his mother's uh, dancing. With his mother's dancing. Yeah. Uh, that he felt it was a stronger choice. And honestly, I agree with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> to keep Love Hurts playing over the credits instead of cutting to John Carpenter's theme because it, it kind of pulls you out of the moment. And yeah. you know what? I actually agree with you there. I just <laughs> don't it's care. Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. The Love Hurts thing. Well, there's oh, also man. this sort of sentimental, you know, sentimentalism in this moment that you were supposed to feel like, and I, you feel nothing. Like I've, I've, I've never felt anything less than just I want to get out of here at the end of a movie. Oh, so here's another thing too. <laughs> at one point, there's a there's a stripper uh, at the Red Rabbit that's like mm-hmm. totally naked, mm-hmm. and and I think the studio is like, no, we really got to like tone that down. You know, she can't just be like completely naked and just running around and being killed. And uh, he he said. Uh, and I quote, if someone tells me to do something, I try to do the complete opposite just to prove a point. Ooh, that's a, and that's I feel a bad like boy. that's kind of what this entire series has been. He just Pretty much. totally went the opposite direction with it. And again, you know, like kudos for for doing something new instead of just wreck, you know, instead of just repeating and taking the greatest hits of the entire series and then pawning it off as your own. Uh, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, it's it's a bottom line. This is a mess. Just like the the first one in two thousand seven was a mess, uh, for much different reasons. I would say that the the first one at least has some form, and uh, this one doesn't. And I don't even think if you even try to coddle the two together, you can really come up with something that would actually work because you have such disparate lines in terms of narrative and where character arcs are going. That to do one way would do injustice to another. So you're kind of in this weird catch twenty two. Either way, I'm uh, I'm getting a little chilly. I want to go up. I want to leave Smith's Grove Archives. And I, I just kind of going to go to the rec room for a little bit and listen to uh, my favorite radio station, WKNB. Fiber. 17-year-old Lori Strode was found directly across the street from the home where the murders took place. The teenager was taken across town to Haddonfield Memorial Clinic. All right. Got some good tunes on this station. Uh, including love hurts <laughs> <laughs> you know i i gotta say i gotta give zombie credit for that mm-hmm. he really tried to get the clearance to use pictures and music and and really reached out to all these people you know like the moody blues and you know zappa picture hanging and all that stuff you know they, they cleared all that to actually use it instead of just kind of putting in some you know no nonsense uh what would be uh music of that time kind of yeah thing. yeah even well, though we still don't know what time or when does this take place they're all wearing clothing very uh, it's, it's all over the place it's all over the, the place the, and the, the, tone. the tone and time period of this it just drives me nuts it's as if like everyone in society was nostalgic to be from like the scuzzy 70s and they just went with it, but whatever. Um, all the scenes with Loomis do feel very modern. Everything else outside of that feels as if it was coming from like a hot topic in 1977. But that's also of a piece with like not only the time in which it was released, but the time that period was fetishizing. Because remember, this is 
two years after Grindhouse. This yeah. is when shit like Hobo with a Shotgun was happening. It's true. We were in the swing of a massive, massive Grindhouse revival. So it stands to reason then that you would accompany that with the needle drops of the era is appropriate, particularly the ironic needle drop because... Even 15 years after Pulp Fiction at this point, we're still ripping off Tarantino all over Hollywood. So would you say that this has ties in terms of aesthetic to what Tarantino is doing in the 90s then? I think it really wants to. I think the 2007 movie is way more pronounced with that. Mm -hmm. I think this is going, as we've discussed, in a headier direction. But I think with that use of Love Hurts, you know, there, there are some ironic usages of music throughout this usually in the most ham-handed kind of way where it's very aware of the fact that that's what it's doing yeah which is you know they definitely still try to have that that nostalgic wash with a lot of things i mean like they she he did tag uh nan vernon who did uh mr sandman in the first one Mm -hmm. uh to do love hurts with this one which is kind of interesting because i feel like that's actually a good summation for both films is that he got someone to cover a song that was big in the original s- series and then for him to get someone to cover a song that was big in his cover or I mean big in his own remake almost feels like this sort of like meta commentary of being like oh no this is now my sort of you know story at that point but either way Tyler Bates who comes back gets to kind of do his own thing that he didn't really you know, get to do with the original one because the original one literally just feels like covers of John Carpenter's of John music. Carpenter's theme, yeah. yeah. I really don't, you know, and, and unfortunately because I was watching the commentary, Rob Zombie just yeah. does not stop talking uh, in, in a great way, mm-hmm. but I really couldn't hear any of the music. So can you guys speak to the music in this I, one? I really don't remember a lot of it. Is it very different? Because it's such a visceral soundtrack in terms of like, like the the sound design itself that well that's what i was just gonna bring up because you know there's a lot of like ominous tones a lot of them understated in the way that carpenter's original score is yeah but i think is really interesting is just what you brought up mike the sound design because it's a movie that feels like it is yelling at you for every second of its fucking runtime and you know again very much a product of its era it is a movie that is meant to bludgeon the senses in every conceivable way and not just with the savage violence which i'm sure we'll come back around to but just even in the way it's designed we had a colleague sitting with us when we were re-watching the movie not actually looking at the screen but just hearing it and all he could know it was nothing but screaming and visceral stomping noises yeah, which is why we were talking about the Guantanamo Bay metaphor because yeah. it literally does feel like an assault to the nerves it is and that was again the fashion of horror there was something in mid to late aughts horror that was very very fixated on removing the comfortable disconnect of it's only a movie we were turning out movies like hostile and like the devil's rejects and again martyrs and inside and so on and so forth Because we were interested culturally in a horror that is abrasive, that is relentless, that is punishing without letting up in the way that horror movies do to make their audiences feel at ease. And there's something to be said for that. But at the same time, again, this movie is showing up so late to that particular party that there is something just kind of dulling about it after a while. Yeah. 
Well, so Tyler Bates doesn't uh, doesn't do it for you guys. In this no, <laughs> no, well, I mean, like, does he service that? Considering that I'm talking more about the sound of cracking skulls as yeah. an oral motif than I am about uh, Bates' yeah. score, yeah. that might be all you need to know. I yeah, know. Well, yeah. one song that does uh, pop up throughout the whole film is "Nights in White Satin," which is a moody blues song, and I love that song. You know, I do too, and I'm pretty sure the white satin is supposed to be a reference to. The White Horse. The White Horse with Deborah Myers. Or, or his mother. Yeah. <laughs> probably so, the mother with yeah, the probably, satin. I would say the mother, uh, who really only appears in this film because, you know, he wanted his, he wanted Sherry Moon Zombie to be back <laughs> in this. And honestly, Sherry Moon Zombie was my favorite part of that first film. But in this one, it's just, it's just she didn't it's distracting. She more in this one? Eh, it does a little, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I like to keep the White Horses to never ending story. Um, but, you know, anyway. Is it, it Artax? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, there was also Captain Clegg and the Night Creatures who, you know, appear at the farm party. Uh, I actually like yeah. this farm party better than the Halloween Five party, but you know, who am I to say? Uh, Captain <laughs> Clegg. They released an album that was uh, that was in conjunction to this. So good job on uh, Rob Zombie to giving some local efforts, uh, you know, a push. But uh, yeah, I, I, not, not much of, about the music that really stuck with me in this one. Mm-hmm. I, I I preferred a lot of the songs in the the first one, even though uh, Justin didn't. But you know, whatever. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, he hated all those '70s oh, songs. Man. But because I, I actually like Zombie soundtrack for the most part, like the soundtrack choices and selections in The Devil's Rejects, they are a little cliche now. But at the time, like hearing the ending with like Freebird and hearing the Allman Brothers band, like those were great selections to me. So I still do love his choice of music. And, and honestly, 31, which is one of my least favorite movies of all time, actually has some good songs in it too. Like James Gang is in there. Yeah, but at know. the end of the day, these are these are movies and <laughs> yeah. not soundtracks. It's and, not just soundtracks. Not, we're not just listening to, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. gotta be a good movie. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you put in there, you know? Well, you, you, you could have a movie with all Beatles songs, but the movie sucks. It sucks, you know? I, I mean? don't know. If they played like uh, Rocky Raccoon in this movie, I think I probably would have liked that a little bit more. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, Happiness is a Worm Gun when uh, he's like, you know, attacking Annie in these flashbacks. That would have been really fun. Oh, jeez. Anyway. All right, so you guys know that I've been trying to lose weight lately. You know, I've been yeah. kind of uh, on the bigger side for most of my life, but I've I've been able to drop a lot of weight because I've been trying to eat healthier. You look good. Th- thank you. you the problem good. is, is Wonderful. I can't cook at all. Like I'm basically I can know. just make I've like tasted your food. I don't know if you guys ever heard of factor meals before. Yeah. No. Okay. So factor meals, it's like these easy, ready to eat meals that they'll send to your house. I'm oh, sure nice. you've heard of services that do this. Yes, type yes, of yes, 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 yes. Sure. Where they send food, and it's this. What I actually really liked about factor is it's like it has to be kind of idiot proof for me because i can't cook or do anything but it's like ready in two minutes it literally comes everything together you don't have to like make anything wrap? it's it's all put together in its own thing two minutes it's not frozen which actually makes it awesome oh nice you know the frozen food yeah. it comes like in a box it's like chilled like yeah with chill the cooling stuff but uh you got all kinds so i did the keto one but they also have like calorie smart protein plus they've even got like so my wife ended up really liking these these like energy shots okay that they put they put in the box that we ordered where she it's literally like just a little shot of different kinds of energy shots that were awesome that sounds amazing was, i always was like i'd see these commercials or i'd hear commercials for stuff but i thought factor meal seemed like something that was really threading that needle and would have been really really perfect for me but dude they had like 
pancakes, smoothies. Who doesn't know, love pancakes? Dinners and stuff like that. Yeah. So they have breakfast? They got like midday snacks. And I, so I thought it was like perfect. Get it in, get it done, yeah. boom. If you're just looking for yeah. like fast premium options and you don't have to really cook or be able to do anything. Sure. Factor is awesome for that kind of stuff. And I thought the, and the quality of the meals, restaurant quality meals that I just could like heat and eat, dude. So it's not like your, you know, your frozen stuff you get at the grocery store. So if you guys want to try factor meals, I'd say go for it because it's really helped me out. And I've, I was actually really surprised. All you guys have to do is head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50. That's five zero to get 50% off. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off, guys. Give it a try. That's half. I know. My ears kind of hurt. Does everyone else's ears hurt? Yeah, my ears yeah. hurt. Yeah, okay. Well, I, I just, I, I, my name is Michael Rothman. I am 34 years old, but Michael Myers was 21. Stop! 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 All right. Tyler Main, back again. He's back. He's back. What do, we think, uh, what do we think about Tyler Main in this one? Um, depending on what film uh, version we're watching, you know he's, he's got quite he's a performance. Brutal. Out of he's uh, he's big. You know, he's relentless. He's Daddy he's Myers. Huge. Again. He's he's a, he's a, he's like the mountain from Game of Thrones. He is know? like the mountain. He from is Game an, of Thrones. he's he is a force to be reckoned with, and uh, <laughs> and and he he's bit you know he, it's Tyler Man. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll say you know one of the things I really like about Zombies' interpretation of Myers is the idea of the shape as this garishly large almost like professional wrestler-esque kind of body where he's just absolutely (laughs) terrifying in every way and i think one of the really interesting things is how you know i i'm not gonna sit here and say that i think zombies particular brand of gratuitous violence works the whole time but i think one of the reasons that it's at the very least convincing is because of the way that main interprets him yeah and and honestly like there are some shots in here especially that are very similar to the first one and where that size does matter uh, to borrow from Roland Emmerich. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I will say that the, the, that sequence in the hospital, seeing those narrow halls and his just hulking frame yeah. is, is truly terrifying to me. Like, like when he's going after like Octavia Spencer and he's just standing over her body, there's just something so alarming of having someone so big in such a small confined space it's it reminds me of almost like the it follows thing where you have the tall guy going through like the small yeah. doorway you know and it's it's funny because zombie even said you know the, the the sequence where he chases annie he said the reason they do flashbacks of that because he had to he, he didn't want to show that it looked almost comical because he's so much bigger yeah. than her yeah it looked like a cartoon almost. yeah like it's like hulk uh you fighting know? spider-man yeah i mean and uh he i mean he is brutal in this movie um uh and i'll give him that i mean yeah. he there's a lot of effects and a lot of things that were built that were supposed to be collapsible breakable and that they just missed the memo and didn't yeah and he took it kind of as as a uh, you know, a challenge to break down that door, and he breaks through he these does. things. And he, I mean, it's intense. And there's a, I think there was a stunt man uh, that doubles for Jeff when he gets killed. Uh, the actor when he gets killed outside of the Red Rabbit. Yes, and he picks him up and slams yeah. him down. And the guy said, "Hey, Tyler, you know, like, I, 
like I've, I'm, I'm good. Like throw me as hard as you want. Like I'm not going to get hurt. And so when they say he said that zombie said, when they say that to him, he takes it as an actual challenge and, and he really tried to hurt that guy. Oh my God. Really? <laughs> I mean, you know, not like in a malicious way, but yeah. he was like, Oh, yo, you don't think that the, you think you could take everything I can give you? Well, here's all here. Here it is. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Cause that's a brutal, like the brutality, so stunt, man. Well, this is interesting because like they've always had stuntmen p- portray Michael, mm-hmm. but man, he's like, going all out in this. He's the 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 brute force of him scares me in this one more than the other ones for sure. Um and by other ones I mean all of the Halloweens in the sense because there is just something truly unnerving about like when you think about the unstoppable shape, this feels like the unstoppable shape to me. So if I do actually credit anything of these of these two movies is I do think like Tyler Maine is probably like one of the better parts of it because he is absolutely terrifying as Michael. It's it's unfortunate the origin stories that he gets and everything that wraps around him. But had this just been, you know, Michael later on down in life, like like, and we don't really know what happened about him, it would have been so so scary, like to me. And I would agree with that right up until the point where now <laughs> I could be wrong about this, and please correct me if I am. But is okay. this the first Halloween where Michael is conspicuously unmasked in a way that is made apparent? Absolutely. Yeah, to this degree, because the closest the closest it comes is there's two moments in the whole series. Really, mm-hmm. it's one is in the first film when um I believe well, it was Andy briefly Moran. unmask him for a heartbeat and he puts it back on you see his eye all fucked up because that's yeah. what Laurie does in the first one then it's in Halloween 5 when he's uh unmasked and he starts crying in front of Jamie <laughs> <laughs> so what we're saying like, about is that, that there's no point in any of the Halloween films up to this point where not only does Michael talk but also gets Bonnie and Clyded in yes. speed ramped slow motion. Not no 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 yeah no. This is a first. So congratulations to Rob Zombie for doing that. Hey, he recreated the legend of Michael Myers. He's no longer a boogeyman in the shadows. I mean, he's at some point when he starts screaming at Loomis and he's like, "Die!" It, well, no, it, it, yeah, that is a cut scene. That is, not, is. that is in the uncut it's version. In the uncut only. version, but. Still, the fact that that even exists is wild. Yeah, like, it's it's not Texas Chainsaw 3D and go get him, cuz, but yeah. it's on that <laughs> spectrum in a way it oh, shouldn't man. be. Oof, that's still like the <laughs> lowest love, lowest bar in horror. That, that that is that is an entertaining watch though. I remember cheering at that part in the movie. Yeah. We, we had just at that point we just doubled down. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's a it's a it's a very low point for all of horror. Well, but this was this is interesting to see Myers talk because you know. Back in 1981, when I wasn't born yet, and I was sitting there watching Halloween 2, <laughs> I was thinking, you know, what would be really great is if he just, like, called out to Lori in the hospital. Lori! <laughs> Wait, where hey, are you? Lori, slow down. Slow down. <laughs> where are you going? Um, I The thing, so I think Tyler Mayne is brutal in this movie, and mm-hmm. I think those sequences work to the extent that they're, tr- you know, they're trying to make it brutal. And yeah. I'm like, yes, you succeeded in that. But... Michael Myers, and, and, and I, that's why I don't like the recreation of this Michael Myers, because Michael Myers, to me, is always just the everyman that can wander around the streets of Illinois and just be mistaken for another trick-or-treater, and yeah. no one knows, no one thinks anything of it. That's a good point, When too. you have Tyler Maine, this hulking beast of a man, strolling around, I'm like, how do you... how? You you can clearly see that he is not supposed to be here right yeah. now. You know? <laughs> like, something is wrong with this guy. Uh, so it's not as scary because you, he's he's right out the gate. You 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 are scared of him. Yeah, it's, when, it's to me it's like it's like Pennywise. It's mm-hmm. like the new Pennywise. Like they made the clown look so scary. Why would any child go near him yeah. ever? 
and that, you know, not that he's supposed to be like you know this like happy. Yeah, no, Michael Myers. Michael Myers, but, Yeah, but it, it, that's why this doesn't. He doesn't work for me in that sense. Well, it's when you think of the context, is when it doesn't work, right? Because you're like, well, wait a second. How did he get so big? Two, why wouldn't anyone see him? Like three, like why is it so hard for him to actually even like kill the people? Sometimes, like it's just, it's just it's it's so. Yeah, like the, the context doesn't work. For even him. in the beginning of the movie, they make a real point of him putting on the mask again, and he mm-hmm. says like we slowed that down because we really wanted to like milk that and make it a, a big scene, much like they do in David Gordon Green's Halloween. Yeah. Oh God. And what I don't understand about that is the mask is so superfluous through the rest, yeah. of, the rest of the movie, and basically is falling off his face and not even present. That it's like why even have it at this point? Yeah. You know, he why should not have just been have in a hood. It? And and to, to zombies' credit, he really did not care about the mask. He he had a lot of him wandering around without the mask on, and it was more of a studio call to be like, no, we really don't want to see him. We want to see him in the shadows. Uh, we don't want to see his face. Um, but yeah, you know. Well, you know, you know. Uh, speaking of Michael Myers, uh, the young Michael Myers, uh, Doug Farch from the original one, did not come back, and it's because he was. Uh, already too old looking to actually come back to do the young Michael. The Walton lost conundrum. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So they had to go with Chase Wright Vanek, who probably was tasked to watch Doug Farch uh, videos. Might be the only person in the history of film to have to watch Doug Farch and be like, all right, you have to act like Doug Farch. Go for it. So congratulations to Chase Wright Vanek. I didn't need to see young Michael again at this. I, yeah. I, I kind of wish that they took away all those flashbacks and they just had him as like the, this older, this older hulking thing. Like I, I just think going it's back, it's not it, like we haven't, it, it, this movie only came out a couple years later. You know yeah. what I mean? It's not like we didn't need, we didn't need that. No. We already zombie, spent zombie so much was time concerned. With there's a, there is a quit. There's a scene where they're going through uh, Dr. Loomis's book and it's actually a picture of the original boy that played him mm-hmm. and not the new one. <laughs> Which is one. really so confusing. It's a real, real, I mean, it's a brief. I mean, you have to pause it to see it. Yeah. Uh, but I just thought that was kind of a funny uh, outtake, I guess, of sorts. Uh, I also like how this Michael Myers, uh, not the not the boy, but Tyler Mann, uh, puts the clothes sign on mm-hmm. at the Red Rabbit Inn. Yeah, he does. kills everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so for some reason, puts the clothes sign on so that people don't go in to see like why is he he's, he's concerned about it? it's, it's well, ludicrous well it's <laughs> what's interesting about this is that you know not only does it try to they try to explain michael in the first one but they also try to explain why he's going to go and kill his family which is the idea that he wants to be with you know his whole family together like Lori and um you know deborah and himself and i guess there's some sort of tragedy to that but God, you know, God knows if I ever would ever felt that watching this movie. And it, it also just overcomplicates it. Like, so he goes back to the Red Rabbit, like, lounge, like, or the Rabbit and Red Lounge to get revenge on people he really didn't even know. Like, I mean, I guess it's because they have the sign outside that has, like, you know, home of Devon. I think he's just drawn there because his mother used to work there, I guess. And like, also, why would he, no one, like, when he actually does appear and you have this hulking guy that literally looks like no one else and has a mask on, the guy at the Rabbit and Red Lounge just does his, it thinks he's, like, some kind of, like, passerby or whatever. Like, hey, get out of here or whatever. It's like, you fucking idiot. You have a sign outside your, your venue that is literally advertising the fact that you have his mother here nobody knows where michael myers is and you're in haddonfield like there's this it's disconnect. only been two years yes and in the theatrical version like, it's only been one year it so makes no think sense that, and there's no way in this day and age because this isn't doesn't take place in the 70s no you know like there isn't there aren't, haven't been pictures of michael myers and all you know uh, from the from the scene of, of the crime when they capture him at the end of the first movie or or he's dead they think yeah. he's dead 
that hasn't been plastered everywhere. You don't recognize that this, this is probably the actual Michael Myers that's still out there. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Bizarre. Anyway, are we done talking about Michael? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, it's a cold December right now. But sometimes when I sit back and feel that cold breeze, it makes me think back to my favorite September girls. I thought you were babysitting to me. The only reason she babysits is to have oh, a place shit. to... I have a place for that. I forgot my chemistry book. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book and my... Well, we're back with another round of September Girls and another round with Laurie Strode. How many times have we talked about Laurie Strode in this podcast? Quite Jesus a bit. Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, this isn't Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode. Nope. This is Scout Taylor Compton. And... She gets a lot more to do in this movie than she did in the first one, but not a lot because it really comes down to two things. It's either crying or screaming. And in between is maybe some pseudo-intellectual discussions about uh, familyhood and whatever. And ah, it's just, a, it's a shame. But so one of the things that's very interesting about this movie's take on Laurie is that Lori is basically an entirely broken PTSD survivor, yeah. which the new film also plays around with. But I would argue at least the new movie still grants her a sense of autonomy totally. that I don't think this version does. This version is a version of Lori who is barely Lori, as you would remember her from the classic movie. Someone who has been irreparably devastated by this experience, which again, not the worst focus for a film had you a more nuanced screenwriter. Exactly. The problem is that in Rob Zombie's hands, he, she is basically the only character that he can't write like a Rob Zombie character without completely destroying the movie. Mm -hmm. So she feels by far the least developed because she seems to be the one he doesn't know how to write. Exactly. And honestly, there are some character quirks here that don't make sense logically and emotionally. So... The whole thing is built upon this twist that she finds out that she's related to Michael, which is obviously the twist from Halloween 2. But here's the problem with that. Dr. Loomis, who we're going to be talking about in the next section, um, writes this book. And in that book is where she discovers that she's related to Michael. So in two years, because we're going to go by the unrated director's cut, right. in two years, she never once is told or found finds out that she is related to Michael, which is... Logically stupid because you would think that she would well, based on the how rebel. long has the book been out? Didn't the book it, just, it just didn't come, come out? out, but at the same time, you don't think that no one like would have you know told her or found out like even Loomis. It just seems weird. But here's where it really doesn't make sense emotionally. It doesn't work for the movie because it would have been far more. Um, it would have been far more applicable to the story had she been dealing with the grief of knowing that she was related to him and that she's having these sort of these these connections and and she's dealing with the grief of knowing that she's tied to this person maybe she's an outcast she's almost seen as like an outcast around the town it would just would feel it would feed into the narrative that they're actually trying to sell here whereas she doesn't even find out about it until the last like 45 minutes of this movie right. and that's a, a hefty amount of time that's already passed cuz like almost an hour and 20 minutes is, or 15 minutes has gone by so already her character is flawed even just from the sort of situation that she's put in, which could have been absolutely remedied by her just knowing it from the beginning. And she would have been a far more interesting character because we would rely less on her 
screaming and going nuts about her revelation and just actually dealing with the actual grief of knowing that and the PTSD of everything that happened before. Um, but that would also require, like you're saying, a more nuanced screenwriter. So it wasn't going to happen. And instead, shock, of course, became, you know, you know, took front seat. Yeah, she she's okay in this. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I I have I like have nothing to say about Laurie. Like, she's poorly written, and Scout does an okay job. I, I will say that stair sequence in the hospital where she's falling down the stairs that was her. That wasn't a stunt yeah. woman. So kudos for yeah. <laughs> throwing yourself down. I mean, in stairs. terms of a physical performance, yeah, Scout yeah, gives she, it. She all. gives her all. She was out there in the rain and the cold, and she never complained once. And Zombie had nothing but good, good things to say about her as an actress, uh, because you know there can be a really difficult actresses out there and different difficult actors, but that she was a real pro and champ. So you know that's good. But uh, yeah, well, <laughs> the character is not. Yeah, no, she doesn't do much for me either, and I don't really buy her turn in the slightest at the at the end in either scenarios the theatrical cut or this one if only because it's so forced it's like by it's by necessary she doesn't even she's there's no autonomy there like it it is just like this is what's gonna happen well and i'm gonna go back to a point i made earlier where she's basically at that ending in the hospital which you know might be happening might not be happening who's to say but in particularly in that sustained close up that I believe is her last proper shot of the movie, she's absolutely doing Anthony Perkins sitting in the chair at the very end yeah. under police interrogation. It It's framed the same way. Contextually, it functions much the same way. But it doesn't earn that moment of eerie resonance because going back to our earlier points. No one in Halloween 2 under Rob Zombie is a real character. Mm -hmm. So in this one moment that has to trade on the character up to that point, it falls flat. Yeah. 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 Well, one September girl I do like, though, in this, at least in the first one, and a little bit on this one, I kind of wanted her to have more, was Annie Brackett, portrayed by longtime Halloween veteran Danielle Harris. And this is by far the biggest crime in this movie to me. I, I agree. Is I, that you have her survive for what? I think this movie should have been Annie's movie. I agree. Because they don't give Scout enough. I mean, it's so easy to just run around and scream and, mm-hmm. you know, be upset and yell at people. And I feel like Daniel Harris is just you know her relationship with her father that i think that just would have been so much more interesting to watch mm-hmm. the two of them dealing with this stuff and then maybe maybe scouts in an insane asylum and she visits her or something do you know what i mean like mm-hmm. i think it would have been great to have pivoted and followed annie because that is something that we've not done that would yeah. have been an interesting new take you know like following her instead well i've just uh, i've just never seen a more like outward example of like somebody not knowing what to do with the character because in the source material Annie doesn't live so it's like well what do i do with her oh well let's just have her sit in the house for the whole movie like she doesn't do anything except for provide some sort of emotional um foil for Lori when they're living and together that's only in the the cut version yeah the it's just, version it's unreal and also she dies again <laughs> and she dies yeah. and she almost doesn't die again and then she does die and it's just i mean if if there's anything that she does do, I guess she adds some sort of fuel for Sheriff Brackett, who, spoiler alert for me, is MVP of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's just not there's nothing there. And it's like I don't I don't I, I can't I can't imagine Danielle Harris, who's been through the ringer uh, with this series, 
could have sat here with this script and been like, oh, this is great. I'm so happy. Like, no, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm going to sit around in my robe in this uh, in this house to do nothing. I mean, and to that point, she actually does do pretty great with what she's given. Like, you know, her death is good. Uh, yeah. And I will say Zombie even said in the commentary that she that death sequence, he really wanted to treat as like a real De- you know she really dies in that room it's it's quiet it's not it's not just this weird crazy showy like violent thing or or that we find her already dead uh and, and i did like that moment but yeah she's she does what she can with the role i mean so kudos for that but i you know i wish there was more there with that character i really wish there was well there are a few other september girls but we're going to bind a few of them together because if we if Lori and Annie didn't get a lot of characterization, then these girls didn't definitely didn't get uh, much. So, of so, characterization. Yeah. so we have uh, Myra Rockwell as a uh, um, <laughs> that's uh, played by Brea Grant. Uh, we have Nancy McDonald who's played by uh, Mary Birdsong, who's uh, also the. I believe she's the PR rep for for Dr. Loomis. Okay. Um, we have Octavia Spencer, who um, is playing Nurse Daniels. We have um, uh, Margot Kidder, who plays the psychiatrist for <laughs> for Laurie, uh, who is Barbara Collier. Uh, all these characters get maybe one or three, you know, three lines at best. Uh, Octavia Spencer who's probably the most noteworthy in here because she's an Oscar winner and it's kind of wild to look, go back and look and see, you know, yeah. she, and honestly, she's great in this because like that, that, that scene that is probably is the most intense, memorable yeah. scene in the whole movie. Um, and then you, you get Betsy Rue, who's Jasmine Benny. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't recognize any of these characters because I don't remember any of these names. I mean, all these, they were just like, they toss around, like all they basically do is just serve as these they're there for the fodder fodder they're there to be yeah. killed no it the movie treats almost everybody in it as a red shirt waiting to happen mm-hmm. which i would argue is a huge problem with the movie because again you know roger ebert used to throw the term around a lot the dead teenager movie and that was his derisive term for a slasher with nothing more going on than you show up you watch a bunch of teenagers die for 90 odd minutes and then you go home and this very much has that this cadence mm-hmm. in a way that I don't think this movie is trying to have. No. And and honestly, you know, you're trying to build up this roster of um of bodies, I guess. And you know, I, I and I wonder if this would have been the same case with the first one if we didn't already know these characters, like Annie and Linda and Bob and you know, and all of them, like because if we didn't have that pre- you know, that source material from the beginning to kind of lean on, would we be saying the same thing about those characters? I mean, I feel like the the, the teenagers at least were a little bit more pronounced in the the first film. Um, well, they had more going dead. on and and they, and they only had the few, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, uh, and they also had Deborah Hill's dialogue that they were still using. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The 07 one. But I, I, I think this is the most blatant example of Dom's point, that, that it is just, they are just there to get stabbed. And... I can't really say much about it. And there's one character that wants to, they all dress up as Rocky horror characters. That was cool, but okay. 
Like, yeah, I thought that was strange. It was like a Rocky Horror party, but then they, there was nothing else Rocky Horror about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's really strange. Well, it's, well they, I guess they all come as like a team costume, and that's kind mm. of fun. But, you know, they all work together at the that bookstore that is very um, uh, South, like like it reminded me of like vinyl fever and yeah well, that's true yeah i mean this definitely um, set that trend i remember that halloween that a lot of people were going as that trio yeah to halloween dressing yeah. up like that no i'm kidding yeah right no one was doing that <laughs> this wasn't a landmark movie no one remembers this yeah well <laughs> either way um I, I i i just don't have much to say about any other september girls because like i mean they're the same thing with the buds and bobs yeah it really is <laughs> i mean you're gonna have two from buds yeah. and bobs and that's yeah. really it so maybe we should just get there uh, and um, in a section we like to call Buds and Bobs. Amazing Grace, come sit on my face. Don't make me cry. I need your pie. Look, why don't you just shut up? All right. We're here talking about Buds and Bobs, specifically two. <laughs> Dr. Loomis, as portrayed by Malcolm McDowell, and Sheriff Brackett, portrayed by Brad Chucky. Beyond the sea, one flew of a cuckoo's nest. Bookie and bad lieutenant, Lord of the Rings, and the Doc from Deadwood. Oh, interesting. Yeah, Durf. Love Durf. On this. So, where, let's. Who do we want to talk about first? Let's do. Let's get Malcolm out of the way. Let's get Malcolm. Okay. I think he was there for one day of filming. Oh Jesus! Really? <laughs> it seems like it. Oh man, there's always one of them. It's like, very, it's very strange to see his Loomis come back, given how rudderless he is in the film. He is mm-hmm. there to be treated as a buffoon, which mm-hmm. ironically the film spends most of its runtime when he's on screen railing against. Yeah, and then he's basically just there so that someone who isn't Laurie can get murdered yeah. during the dramatic climax. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I guess there's a, some sort of thing he's supposed to contend with the the idea that he's capitalized on uh you know Myers death and or not or lack of death or his time with Myers even though there was no real like signs of that in the first one because he he does try in the first one to kind of contend with Myers and try to work with you know what was actually happening with him but all of a sudden there's this turn where he's this like celebrity hungry guy i i mean i get i know what he's trying to say here and he's trying to show like the way that we capitalize on atrocities and murders and all but it is so like hollow and misguided it's just so like it's a boilerplate argument here and well and mac to go back to your point it feels like he's of a separate piece with the rest of the movie whenever he shows up like it almost feels as if like when he's watching his tv uh, appearances it's almost like he's watching the movie with us (laughs) yeah yeah, it is (laughs) but it's almost like they like put him up they literally put him up at that hotel and then they just shot the scenes at the hotel because they didn't want to go anywhere yeah Uh, he's like i'm not leaving my hotel room i need to read this script for (laughs) Franklin and Bash. I'm fine with them turning him into this kind of, you know, player Hollywood douchebag, like going for the money uh, character because they really lean on Brad Dorff as the more of the Loomis-esque character in this movie. And I'm fine with that because I love Brad Dorff. And I think Malcolm McDowell plays that sleazy character really well. Uh, But it's just, it does feel like completely... Like we're in a different movie when we go to those scenes. Yeah. The only sequence I do really like with him uh, that I think works in context of the film is when he's doing the book signing and mm-hmm. Linda's father confronts him. Yeah, I agree. In the store, that's that felt like ooh, that was like an uncomfortable moment. But um, you know, it's Malcolm McDowell. 
Yeah, he he does his bit. Uh, I don't. I think it's ludicrous how he comes at the end and tries to save the day yeah. in a weird way. Like this is it's like forced. we're supposed to care about his redemption. Yeah, he's just such a total jerk off. And like, it's only because of Linda's so father comes. It's, just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, and, and honestly, like it's out of all the the moments to have where he comes in and you know Myers just basically decimates him. I am absolutely rooting for Myers at this point. Like that's oh, such yeah, a weird. Yeah, you moment. come around. You you want you want him to be killed. Yeah. Whereas, like in the first one, that wasn't the case at all. Like, I actually felt as if he—you really got to see Loomis try, even though I don't really need to see that um, because you—you you understand. What's the genius about Carpenter's version is that you understand that he's tried forever mm-hmm. because you see it in you know Loomis's you know in Don, Donald Pleasant's performance. So obviously, we get to see that explicitly played out in the first one. So I don't really understand why he would kind of betray the arc that he was already set in motion in the first one. Maybe it was his way of just trying to really distance himself from Carpenter stuff, but I guess for it, it doesn't work. And yeah, like you're saying, he doesn't feel like it almost feels like he, he, um, he does run out of from a different movie. Like when he comes back to Haddonfield, it reminds me of like the ending of like Tropic Thunder when Matthew McConaughey comes up with like a TiVo. You're like, <laughs> Oh yeah, you're in this movie. I sort of forgot, you know? Um, so yeah, what a what a waste of a Loomis because Malcolm McDowell when I first heard that he was going to be cast for this this remake I was actually pretty excited because yeah. he's a you know he's a great fucking veteran actor and you know we'd seen already that that zombie was able to do stuff with some of the more veteran 70s and 80s actors and stuff but right. eh, let down for me let's no. move on to yeah. a, a character I do like I do like this yeah <laughs> you know Brad Dourif as Sheriff Brackett my favorite part of this movie. He's arguably the closest to a functioning soul <laughs> yes. or a human being that this movie ever gets at. Mm-hmm. You know, the sequence when he's confronting Loomis near the end and basically like trying to kill him with his bare hands. It's maybe the most authentically human moment in the entire movie. Easily. Oh, yeah. Easily. I mean, Brad Dourif can, he can sleepwalk through these movies and, and be the best part of them. He's just a great actor, period. Yeah. Uh, I I love seeing him take on the father role to Laurie. Mm-hmm. He's now responsible for these two girls who he could not save in the first film. Um, Might be the best I, uh, sense of plotting that Zombie brings to this. Yeah, I wish it focused more. Again, I wish it focused more on Annie and the Brackett family in this yeah. one. That is an interesting angle, and they just they don't quite do it. I mean, Dorf's in a lot of it. Well, at least in the uncut version, the the sheriff, sheriff Brackett's in a lot more of it. Um, and those parts work for me, but uh, yeah, I, I wish I wish I had pivoted more. I wish that we would have had uh, Bracket, Lori, and Annie in this house, and they're all just hanging out for Halloween, and we get like a straw dog situation. We have to watch like Bracket and, and all of them really come in their their own, and like you have these survivors, and you have a veteran cop that are like fighting against this guy. And it's all around the house. And you obviously see stuff like when he's wandering around the, the forest mm-hmm. and stuff like uh, like he's Gandalf. But then at the end, you do have this finale that would actually make some sense because you would have spent time with these characters. Yeah, but, you would have you know. cared. Yeah, I mean, it's it, 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 obviously that's... But we've got to throw in uh, the, all the cool characters at uh, the Red Rabbit Inn. Well, I just like to have all those cool sex scenes. So, um, you know, and, and, and references to uh, water mm-hmm. sports and whatever else that you could squeeze into the farm party. But... Yeah, Brackett's great in this. Uh, I, I I always wanted to get more with Brackett in like the original series, so to actually spend some more time with him was really great here. 
Um, and even and you get that right in from the get go, like right when he he's like talking to the two corners who you actually think are just going to be regular corners and not these horn dogs that are going to be like talking about fucking corpses in the in the the corner van. He's just like, there's nothing normal about this situation. You know, there's nothing, and like the, the way he like delivers it. There's there's such an authority there that it's refreshing because it's like, wow, finally we have like a fucking real character we can get behind. So I wanted more of them for sure. Yeah, yeah. So. What are the buds and bobs do we have here? We got, uh, I mentioned those two corners. Yeah, those were great. We got uh, um, Joe oh, Chill yeah. from, uh, from, <laughs> from, from Batman Begins uh, comes back. He's a 31 star. He's going to be the, the real bad boy. Richard Brake. Richard, I actually no. do like Richard Brake. You know, like I Richard just Brake? don't love the zombie films he's been in. I know. I can't stand him in 31, and I thought he's disgusting in this, and I didn't need five minutes of him being like, Fuck! I believe I believe he's Fuck. on Peaky Blinders. And, oh, really? Uh, I, I I dig him on that. But well, I uh, <laughs> I like I like the uh, Frankenstein monster who fucks. Yeah. Um, I like that the movie needs to revisit that motif later <laughs> on with him declaring, and I quote, "How'd you like to be fucked by the Frankenstein monster?" Shortly before he's murdered. Yeah, which is great because uh, he is played by. Um, Daniel uh, Roebuck. Yeah, who's in uh, The Fugitive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I like Daniel Roebuck. And he comes back from the first one. crazy. Oh, yeah, they had to change. I think there was something about his name. They had to change his name from the first one. They, for some reason, they had, they had lost the rights to part of his name or oh. something Well, weird. he's Big Lou in this so, one. Yeah, they, so they call him Big Lou in this. I like Big um, Lou's pizza back at home. I also do like Jeff Daniel Phillips. I think that he's always really entertaining uh, he's the guy that works at the Red Ray. He's yeah, the guy. I actually he, he really like him, him outside. Too. Yeah, he also plays Uncle Seymour uh, Seymour Coffins at the um, at the the Phantom Party. Yeah, or whatever. Uh, but, I, he's actually my favorite part of uh, um, of thirty one. Thirty one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's always fun to see him. But uh, again, not much given to to these characters. No, so. no. Similar to the September Girls, I think these buds and bobs are um, the these buds have, uh, lack the suds. So I'm I'm willing and absolutely uh, open to moving on uh, if you're uh, if you're okay with that, guys. Uh, yeah, because scrolling great. Oh, we got Wolfie, uh, played by oh Matt yes, Bush. Uh, the guy who <laughs> literally... Sean Whalen, uh, who plays Bex, the guy that uh, finds uh, Lori out in the street and then gets killed immediately. He's been uh, he was in the uh, People Under the Stairs and oh yes, you know he, he he's a great character. Oh, and then there's Buddy at the beginning who but again. Uh, Who's Nothing in from is... Office Space? Uh, yeah, and th- but these people again—they are just—they they are there to be killed in, yeah. in whatever kind of way we can. Yeah. Um, nothing really much given to them. No, there really isn't, and uh, that's why. About, and one of them was Annie. Oh, 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 I can no What a great seg. Yes, good seg, good seg. You know, I didn't really have much there, and I just went for it. So this section is where we talk about the most surprising death in the film. Anyone's guess? I, I don't know. Who, who, who's the most Dom, surprising death? Dom had something. Yeah. So Dom has something in as much only to say that I'm going to sound like a dick now, but I wasn't surprised by a single murder in this movie. No. Because I'm not, look. When we get to our next category of discussion, I'm not going to say that there weren't deaths that I found effective throughout mm-hmm. the film. Oh, yeah. But as far as surprising, no. Because <laughs> zombie has a tendency 
to telegraph, especially in the unrated cut, which is so editorially undisciplined, it's remarkable. Mm -hmm. He has a tendency to telegraph his murders long before they take place in a way that doesn't really ramp up atmosphere or the thrills so much as just make it feel like, oh, we are taking a while to get around to this, huh? Yeah, which is why, like, even even with the main principles, like, you kind of get the idea that, like, Loomis is going to die in this, right? Like... Yeah, but I didn't. I didn't care. I think. The, I think. I guess the fact that Annie lived and then dies, and and only to kill her in this movie is was the most surprising thing to me. It was like, why would you do that? Why not? Yeah. Why not kill Laurie and then keep Annie around? And yeah, and we realize, oh, this is actually Annie's movie. You know what I mean? Like because she's in a, quite a bit of the first one as well. So I just. I don't know. It's just baffling. Yeah, I think it's, I guess that is surprising in the sense that she does die when she did survive um, in logic. Yeah. Well, if she survived the attack that happens to her, it'd be ex- it literally carbon copy of the first movie. So I guess they had to kill her. <laughs> and I was going to say, you know, she'd be the closest to a surprise because then I would say, was Loomis? And it's like, it's like, no, because the more obvious death for the end of this movie is if like he met a kid he didn't know about before halfway through. Like I, I don't know how you can telegraph it much yeah. more flagrantly. Yeah. No, it's 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 pretty bad. And huh, even like even like Meyer's death is is one that like makes you wonder. Like you're like that was probably going to happen because they're already you know, teasing the idea that Laurie's taking over. I mean, it, I'm kind of getting off topic, I guess. But it's it's such a boring showdown. It's because it's literally it, it keeps all the people from the first showdown. Mm-hmm. In, just in the shack this time. Yes. And it's just it's it's just not interesting. No. No. Uh, not in the slightest. And you know what also makes it not interesting, at least in the director's cut? Having a fucking helicopter flying over with like 60 policemen surrounding the area. Mm. If I thought the the ending of Halloween 4 was bad when they had the whole the <laughs> cavalry that's th- that, that's there, oh, yeah. this is just ridiculous. Like how is this this is like less intimate than the ending for the movie Heat. <laughs> Like Heat has two people in the middle of a goddamn fucking like you know airport, yeah. And this has sixty squad g- guys. Like it's just insane. It's there's not one lick of horror to this, and maybe maybe that's his point. Maybe he so wanted to distance himself from not making a, a Halloween movie that he also forgot to make a horror movie. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think that it's it's kind of telling that we don't have a surprising death here because I think that's a big part of of horror is to be surprised. Yeah. And like if you're not surprised, I think that is a failure on the genre. But who am I to say? Because the next uh, segment that uh, is really going to show if this is a horror movie or not is one we like to call One Good Scare. Louis, the boogie man is outside. Look. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What do you, I don't know. Yeah, well, yeah, it's hard pop- for, yeah go oh, ahead. Sorry, I'll no, pop no, in no. here. So if we're if we've already established that every kill in this movie is both gratuitously violent and fairly predictable, I think my big scare is actually the one with Buddy at the beginning, because of Mm -hmm. all the scenes that run way too long in this movie, and there's quite a few of them. This is the one where the protracted length actually really works for me Mm -hmm. because it works all the way through the cycle of having him lock her in a shack to go get his car for her to be left there sitting, standing alone. And now you assume, oh, Michael is going to like slam his severed head against the side of the window and maybe have sex with it because it's a Rob Zombie movie. (laughs) And then we're going to move on. 
And I think the way that the scene actually loops all the way around from her terror to him actually showing up to him not getting killed until he's trying to re-unlock the door is actually pretty effective and unsettling. I would because agree. there's this way that it it goes with the rule of infinity thing where it lasts so long that you think, oh, maybe there's going to be a deviation from the norm here. And then when the violence actually does occur, it's at least a little jarring. It is. Which is better than most of this movie manages. I would agree. And I would say that entire section for me is probably the most terrifying of this entire movie because of what I was saying before with like the whole hallway and the large, the large and small sort of thing. And to your point, I mean, yeah, it, this is such a protracted thing. And the, the situation is so dire for Lori because you really get her injuries. Like when they bring her in and you're doing those those focuses of like all her cuts and all the, the sort of sewing. Zombie, to his credit, really does a good job in making you think that this is a war torn. Like she is a war torn like survivor. And so when you actually she has to get up and like move around, it is so believable. Like like her like the, the fact that she's going to have these hurdles to her own body. And so that's, I think, adds a little bit more terror because it's like there's this inescapable dread of like, oh, God, her body is just like at like 25 percent right now. Yeah. But did any of that actually even happen? We don't know. Uh, but in the moment, I remember that 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 is genuine. That was a good that's a good use of that. I, I think when he comes back and he's still alive, you're like, oh, OK. Yeah. But uh, I, th- I th- if I remember back to when I was in the theater watching this, the only the only good scare that I had was when they first show the horse and his mother on the street. <laughs> and I thought, oh, God, what are we in for? <laughs> I oh. don't uh, I don't disagree. Mac, I, don't disagree. I picture you in the theater just doing the Fred Sanford heart attack and just falling well, over. It was the Dr. Sartan, like, reveal. <laughs> I, it, I, yeah. I, like, like, I cringed. And, like, I remember Mike sat up, and I just yeah. thought, oh, he's about to walk out of the theater. Yeah, and I almost did. Oh, man, if I wasn't, was something you know, else. I'm glad I didn't have to review that movie because I would have gotten a lot lower than what we gave it on the site, and and probably because I would have I was having convulsions in of anger uh, <laughs> during that movie because I couldn't believe what was going on, and that's I... and I imagine I don't think I would have had that with this in theaters because I didn't see this in the theaters, um, uh, but. I, because I think at that point I just just disassociated myself from this entire franchise by then, right. and it didn't really matter at this point. It was just like, what is he going to do that to surprise me? And that was more of a surprising. But you know, it's also surprising. Get out now! He's dead, right? He's got to be dead. I mean, come on. He's he was shot more times than Myers was in the entire series. And I I also feel that if they, if the whole point of this movie, whether it's a theatrical release or or this uh, uncut version we watched, is that the kind of, the baton is kind of passing to Lori, and that Lori's going to be the new kind of shape, mm-hmm. or she's just as destroyed now. She's going. She's she's lost her mind. Then yeah, I think he's probably dead. And you know what? I honestly, <laughs> I wish Zombie had done a Halloween three where it followed Crazy Laurie Strode mm-hmm. as the new Myers. Uh, or we got something I, I think, like that. I think. I mean, it would have just been. You know, it would have been such a double down and just like just a sort of total departure. I, I would have actually been interested in watching that movie. And the sad thing is, even with all of that in mind, and Mac, I'm inclined to agree with you. 
you know, I just I watch Michael Myers get shot in a movie and I go, oh, he's not dead. Yeah. He gets shot in the face and came back for another one. I know. Exactly. So him getting what is basically the same ending as Devil's Rejects down to the photography sons Freebird, which is what makes that scene so great. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I don't I don't buy that Michael Myers is ever dead. But I also have maybe never cared less about whether he yeah. is or isn't than I do here. Because either way, I don't care about the another one. Like, I mean, yeah, if there was a, like a Laurie led Michael Myers slash Halloween thing. Yeah, I would probably watch it just to see how that would carry out, because it's something that they teased in Halloween at the end of Halloween four. And they never did a lot of things. Oh, yeah. yeah. And they never did it. And so, that yeah, that would have been really cool to see that happen. Um, <laughs> but in this respect like i guess i would have to imagine if this is the ending of this sort of franchise or mini franchise or whatever mm-hmm. the fuck we want to call this zombie verse zombie land i think this, we called the last coupling, one yeah. if this is the ending of zombie land i think myers is dead michael myers is dead he's waiting for uh lori or angel to die so that they could all be united in this weird ass zombie heaven so yeah sure he's gone and I kind of hope he's gone because well, the franchise wants... is dead yeah. there. So because otherwise he's right, in the, the zombie zone. franchise. What do you think happens to characters when they're just waiting for the sequel to happen? And well, like I this, think like, they're fictional... waiting in that sanitarium with Lori. With Lori? Uh, Ooh, wait, you know, maybe Norman Bates is next door. Waiting, watching, and that fly is in that room too. <laughs> okay, thank you. We are uh, we're going to skip what was the Mark of Thorn uh, because I don't think there's really any conspiracy theories to kind of go with this mm-hmm. one. I guess our our lost. Uh, <laughs> third movie uh where laurie's the villain is, uh, that's not gonna happen yeah, so it's pointless gonna. we know in hindsight now that what happened after this film was that well it was in development hell forever because they were going to make a halloween 3d that didn't work then they had halloween returns and then that didn't work and then now they finally have halloween which is the the great film that david gordon green uh, released and if you really want to know our thoughts on that film you can go back to our controversial episode from last october <laughs> in which we were pretty much um uh stabbed by our fans uh for for hating for hating this movie but it's okay it's okay because we're gonna go into our final thoughts you son of a bitch i'm gonna kill you lopez i'm gonna kill you god damn it i don't remember how many jack lanterns i gave halloween i think give it more than i thought i was going to this is a this is a hard one jack-o'-lantern with the lights out <laughs> lights out uh i i just it doesn't, you know, again, I that one Jack Lantern is for zombie really just trying to do his own thing with it and not caring. I mean, we gave David Gordon Green so uh, that film so much shit for, mm-hmm. you know, doing a greatest hits of all of the sequels that they were totally ignoring and saying weren't any good. And um, they they said, well, now we, we're just going to pay attention to the first one so we can really do anything we want. And then all they did was kind of do a, a retread and um, kind of a bit of a remake of the original Halloween. So how interesting would that be watching the first original Halloween and then watching a movie that's basically that movie yeah. just updated? I, I don't know. I, I don't know what they're thinking there. But So I give Zombie credit for trying to do something else. It just wasn't my bag yeah. and I didn't enjoy it. And I'll go up to two jack-o'-lanterns, if only because I think, again, establishing this as a relic of the era in which it was made, there is something really abrasive about Zombie's take on Halloween, particularly in this movie. Though even in the first film, you have that grisly sequence of the guard being stomped to death on screen. 
you know, there is there is a venom to his movies that is deeply unpleasant. And that I feel like I've given off the impression by this point in the podcast, I didn't take a lot of pleasure in a lot of the time. But Zombie also doesn't make horror movies for the sake of pleasure. He makes horror movies to repulse in a way that horror movies are not really made anymore. And, you know, Zombie's work has not exactly gotten what we would call better from here. But at the same time, I feel like there is something genuinely disarming about the way that he presents violence, the way he presents death, the way he presents brutality that is so grimly nihilistic that even if it's very much one note again in the milieu of its time, I still think there's merit to presenting a horror movie in that way where it is harsh, where it is abrasive, where it does, you know, leave you ill at ease in watching it. Nothing I've said here makes Halloween 2 any better of a movie, (laughs) but it's one I find conceptually interesting. And I would agree. I mean, like, you know, I would probably go between. I'm going to go one and a half because I do like that he departs uh, from the source material. And I also really love uh, Brad Dorf in this. I really like I think this gives us a good window of like that supporting characters in the Halloween universe can actually be more interesting than the actual main characters that we're supposed to always lean on, whether it's like one of the Strodes or one of the Myers. And so having that and proof of knowing that the corollary characters could be fucking great and actually could carry a movie is interesting to me. Um, But, you know, and I do appreciate the fact that he leans into some of his more Argento flavors that he would really indulge upon with Lords of Salem, you know, a few years later. Um, And I really do wish that he would have done that more. I wish that we could have just had this absolutely wild fever dream in this hospital with just Laurie and Myers. And it would have been this almost quasi experimental thing. And it could have been this really weird doom and gloom nightmare. And that would have been great because honestly, the first 15 minutes of this movie, I'm in, like I'm actually, I'm really in, I'm really riveted with what's going on. And you know, that would have just been interesting to me. You know, we might not, we wouldn't have had the bracket stuff, but I mean, at least it would have been something interesting in that. It would have had some sort of gravitas. And I, I saw this with Dan Caffrey and mm-hmm. uh, another fellow Halloweeny, and he actually really liked this movie. And I he think does. it's for all the reasons we're saying, we're just, we're not giving as much credit as I think he would give it yeah. credit. Yeah. Um, and at that, that whole hospital sequence, I remember we were just kind of like on the edge of our seat, like, yes, 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 this is, this is going to be good. This is going to work. This is going to work. And then it's a dream. And two years later, and we just are totally going a completely different route with that. Um, but before we wrap up, I well, I wait also, a second. Guess oh. what? I just got a message from Dan Caffrey with his with his uh, arguments oh, for this. Oh, okay. He he just texted me saying, "I'm gonna give Zombie H2. Wait for it. Three jack o' lanterns. Wow. It's still extreme in ways that are abrasive, and annoying. But it it has a vision, and in my opinion, is a more in depth exploration of Laura's uh, Laurie's trauma than many of the other sequels. I love how much time they devote to Bracket and Annie." Horse still sucks. Redneck, redneck stuff still sucks. First 20 minutes or so in the hospital is one of the best sequences in the series. So he, to your point, yeah, he does like a lot of the stuff that we like just a little bit more. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, Three Pumpkins from Caffrey is uh, that's a pretty good rating. So I don't know if I would ever go that high with um, any of the Halloween sequels post like, uh, God, at this point, post six. But hey, you know, we didn't get here from Justin, but 
I'm going to have imagine he doesn't that like this movie. <laughs> he doesn't like this movie. And I and I don't think it was and it, it's funny because he's not even on this app. He's not on this episode <laughs> and he really did not want to be on that first episode either. So, uh, cuz honestly he didn't really want to do these zombie movies at all on this podcast and yeah, we, I think we did you know, it. We, we had to. We, we had, had to do for the we had to do for the fans. But anyway, but before we wrap it up, before we wrap it up, what you, I just want to mention one little uh, Stephen King tie. Oh, we've got we've got Bill Beggerbeck, Tom Cullen himself, as one of the cops at the end of this movie. Really? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So it's a little, a little, uh, a little crossover. Yeah. Uh, well, you M- think M O O N spells Myers? <laughs> I would love it if he did actually just have his overalls on and like a cop hat. <laughs> it's a total crossover. It makes no sense. It makes no sense whatsoever because it's the end of the world in the sand. Oh man. Anyway, oh my God, we finally reached the end of the halloween franchise um i was gonna ask and see if everyone could give their rankings of the franchise uh we maybe well, could do I that think, as a separate episode I if think we wanted we'll have to have a little mini episode kind of closing the do- closing this chapter and then opening uh, the, Nightmare the next door yeah so we should save our franchise rankings for the next episode yeah, absolutely all right well then it's an executive decision that i agree with what do you got you got nothing all right well <laughs> We are going to softly close the book on the Halloween franchise because, like Max said, we're in between. We are dri- we're on the state line of Illinois going into Indiana, and we're going to be driving towards Ohio because, like we said before in past episodes, and we've teased on our socials, we are going to be heading to Springwood, Ohio. Ohio, not Illinois, like I, uh, uh, <laughs> I definitely uh, mislabeled in the last episode. But, yeah, Springwood, Ohio, because we're going to go through all of a nightmare on Elm Street. I am so excited for this next chapter of Halloweenies. I, 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 I love this wait. series. Love this series and so much. Through and through. Pretty I, much. I really do. And yeah. I, and honestly, like I think we with what we've actually been starting to develop with uh this uh this next series, it's going to be really interesting. And I think yeah. that we did a year with Halloween. Uh, I learned a lot of things that I will be discussing more in the next episode. I think that would be a good to have like some yeah. sort of real button on this. We can't really just end it on H2. We gotta do another thing. But uh, until then, um, we're going to have one special holiday episode for you. I'm going in on it. And I know the other Halloweenies are tired. So this is going to be a special episode with some special guests that I'm going to try to book in the next 48 hours. Uh, But we are going to do Black Christmas. And by Black Christmas, I mean, yes, the original one by Bob Clark and uh, the remake by um, Glenn Morgan, uh, who of X-Files fame. So, yeah, going to be interesting. Uh, lots to t- discuss with that one. I'm not a huge uh, a fan of that remake, but we're going to be talking about it anyway. And so that means you're getting a lot of Halloweenies this month in December. This isn't the, this isn't the month of giving because that's uh, November, but this is uh, season's greetings. And that I don't know if that that's the, that's not the right thing either, but it's Christmas <laughs> time for Christ's sake. Tis the season <laughs> to give gifts. And these are the gifts that we're giving. Three episodes. Please, God, enjoy them rate and review we need reviews we need people to know about these halloweenies because we're not going anywhere we're going to be talking about more horror franchises and other franchises in the distant future there's a lot of legs to this and what we thought was only going to be relegated to haddonfield illinois is actually going to be in other places all across the world so yes we are going to go to springwood ohio and maybe the next year we might go somewhere else maybe outer space who knows 
until then, uh, let's uh, get some uh, let's get some plugs from our guest Dominic Suzanne Mayer, who has some very exciting stuff to coming up in 2019. Yeah. So again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, filmography will return with a special Christmas episode in the very near future. Um, it may or may not have gone to press already by the time you hear this, but either way, we'll be talking the 1960. 1960. <laughs> We'll be talking the 1996 classic Jingle All the Way, so you can look forward to that. We'll have another miniography in January. We'll be announcing our bigger plans for the next few months pretty soon. Otherwise, you can find all of my stuff at Consequence of Sound. You can also hit me up on Twitter at Mayer to talk about either pro wrestling or the movie Mandy, because those are the basically the only two things I discuss with other people now. <laughs> and yeah. Other than that, I hope to come back and chat with you guys again when oh, you, you head will. over to Ohio. You will. And uh, when are we going to get a Mandy cast? Uh, my nine-part breakdown about <laughs> Panos Cosmatos' new classic Mandy will begin forthwith. Why don't you do – I was just recently on an episode of uh, One uh, Heat Minute, and that is a dissection of heat every minute. So every, one one minute per episode. I uh, Maybe one day down the road you'll do Mandy a minute. <laughs> Yeah, Jeez. four episodes on Cheddar Goblin alone. I'm yes. very excited yes. about it. Well, Mac, do you have anything that you want to add on here? Uh, just, you know, lock your doors. Bolt your windows. And turn off the lights. And make sure the candle's out, because that jack-o'-lantern can be very dangerous if it's not. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Consequence Podcast Network.